Hey everybody, and welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and today I'll be reading from my semi-autobiographical novel, I'm Just Making It Up As I Go Along, and Things Have Not Been Working Out As Well As I Intended, Chapter 9953, Temporary Friends, Part 4, Delinquency, Rapture. It occurred to me that being addicted to cocaine can be compared to having intense gas and flatulence. You need to fart, but sometimes the odor is just so atrociously heinous and concentrated that you become disturbed by the intensity and wonder what kind of digestive activities and secretions are at work making whatever you have consumed stink so badly. You think you can get away with a few small farts in another room and it will go unnoticed and you can act casual when you enter the next room, but it is so horrible and smells so bad and will not dissipate into the atmosphere. But it seems to have permeated the fabric of your clothing and will not leave your body. It seems to form a cloud that just lingers and repulses everyone in proximity to you. You don't possess the perspective to know that just because it isn't as terrible as it was at first, it is still quite obvious to anyone near you. And when you enter any room, it follows you around and everyone makes a sour face like James Finlayson in a Laurel and Hardy short. Most people courteously avoid you, but some will point blank confront you and tell you that you stink and aren't fooling anyone. They are doing you a favor and you still stink. P.U. It's that obvious. That being said, it is difficult for me to withstand anyone claiming I'm honest to a fault, the fault being actual dishonesty. If you ever feel the need to make that distinction, I have qualms about placing any trust in you. I am always taken aback whenever anyone says, to be honest with you, because it implies that up until that very moment, they have not been honest with me and I can never believe anything they say again. How will I know when they are being honest, dishonest, deceitful, or anything but honest? Be honest. You don't have to spill your guts or anything like that. But come on now, don't imply that you lie as a matter of course. And as you say this, everyone is thinking, ooh, what a giveaway. And you just might be unaware. It's a lot easier to go through life without needing to remember a tissue of lies you're going to get caught in anyway. And as an aside. Don't you just hate it when you are in the middle of a sneezing fit and at a certain point in your life, they do become predictable in intensity and length. And you will usually sneeze a certain number of times, but it is quite often more than just once. And whoever approaches you to talk starts talking to you immediately after the first sneeze and does not comprehend that you are in the midst of a session that leaves you unable to focus on them and they just keep on jumping in there between sneezes and don't wait until you are finished and can concentrate on their piddling crap. Bill Graham and the $50 t-shirt and sandwich. So this is from KBOO.org's blog about the event experience on a radio show hosted by a fellow named Andrew Geller. I will get to the experience right after reading this, and it is relevant and significant. 
So Mr. Geller says, there are two other significant aspects to the 79 New Year's run. One hardly noticed and the other enshrined in Grateful Dead legend. What seems to have been elided in Deadhead history was that the New Year's 79 show appears to have been the formal beginning of the annual road trips to the West Coast by Eastern Deadheads. Obviously, many a Deadhead had made their Western pilgrimage in the past, but here was an extended run during a vacation period, not so hard to fit into work or school, and it was like a homing call. I went to all five nights in 79, and each night there seemed to be more and more people from outside the Bay Area. They gave each successive night a livelier feel, as the high-energy Easterners saw the whole event differently than us locals. New Year's Eve, as I recall, was a wild, strange night indeed, a sort of party with representatives of every state of the Deadhead Nation. This phenomenon only became more pronounced with each passing year, but I recall New Year's Eve 7980 as having a very strange, rowdy vibe, as if something was in the water, which it very well could have been. Dot, dot, dot. So, to the story. I was further regaled with stories of my uh, titular chef friend and his friend, and maybe others, and I don't know if it was because of acid, heroin, or possibly a combination of the effects of both or cocaine or whatever, and please understand that titanic consumption of weed was just always implied. But this is the Bill Graham New Year's Eve 1979 Grateful Dead story. I do know that at the Oakland Auditorium, the promoters screened Animal House and the Blues Brothers were the opening act. Talk about a great show. How do you start something like that? Man, is that fantastic? My friend told me that he and his friends, because there were others with them, dressed as the burnt out ragamuffins they were, because they were scuzzy little water rats, would scam everything they could anywhere they could. It was in their nature, and it kept their scamming skills up as high as they desired, something they seemed to perceive as a desirable character trait. They never corrected others if their misconceptions about them worked in their favor, ever. They went to the Oakland Auditorium in San Francisco to see a Grateful Dead New Year's Eve show in 1979. Actually, it was 1979 to 1980. My friend told me, and I took this with a grain of salt, that while they were waiting online, Bill Graham was legendary for picking out a few of the more needy-looking waifs, wastrels in the crowd and would, out of, I guess, a sense of noblesse oblige, offer them a nominal gig inside, so they got it for free, with $50 pay, a sandwich, and a t-shirt so they wouldn't look so grubby. As the story goes, they were selected by Bill Graham. He told me that they, now, the both of these guys I'm really focusing on, are about 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five or so, both with long braided ponytails, were both running around the venue pretending to be playing cops and robbers and had water guns. The water guns were dosed with LSD and they were giving it to any people in their seats who wanted to be dosed while pretending to be playing cops and robbers. Okay. Son of a bitch, I saw that show on PBS, and if you look really hard, 
you can actually see them scampering about the fringes in flashes here and there. No explicit confirmation on the acid administration, but damn it, they were there. And Mr. Geller's recollection reinforces and confirms the story a little bit. Anyway, but damn it, they did do the things they said. As unreal and as unlikely as every claim seemed to be, especially coming from these little runty hippie kids. <laughs> so, their wild ride had already begun, and this was a component. Where they got the temerity or audacity to pull these stunts off, I don't know. But they had chutzpah. I was also told that sometime after March 24th, 1980, which is a specific date, before they got a hold of their pot-growing headquarters mansion in the hills of Santa Cruz, a number of them shared an apartment in downtown Santa Cruz, which is a pretty town. For those of you who don't know, Santa Cruz is part of the Monterey Peninsula area with Capitola, SoCal, Monterey, Carmel, and Santa Cruz. These guys were hardcore junkies by then. Now, March 24th, 1980 was the premier date for Dateline with Ted Koppel. Keep this in mind. I was told that they felt it was convenient to be downtown because it was easier to receive and sell the drugs from the apartment, but only for a short time before they would be busted. They told me that they liked to, while their time away, in between heroin deliveries, by drawing and re-injecting their own blood from syringes because they loved the sensation. They also told me that they were convinced that two pigeons that would occasionally land on the windowsill outside of their apartment were actually CIA spy pigeons that were sent there to spy on them. This is what heroin does to you. And that they believed they could speak and comprehend pigeon to and from the pigeons. And they magically deduced that the pigeons were spy pigeons. And he gave me an example of pigeon, which sounded like cooing like a pigeon. Anyway, they parted ways one day after this other fellow, not my friend, the titular chef, somehow became convinced that Ted Koppel, the Ted Koppel, the host of Nightline on ABC, was actually the reincarnation of Adolf Hitler and that he was sending this guy, not my friend, coded messages during the broadcasts telling him that Ted was going to murder him. Really, he became so unswervingly convinced that not only was Ted Koppel going to murder him, but that he needed to take swift, urgent, dire action to safeguard himself. And his plan was to rob nine banks in one day in San Francisco and make off with the loot and be secured for murder by Ted Koppel. Oh, really? Yep. And he did exactly that. And he was caught. And he called the place we lived in from prison, where he was sentenced to life on pretty frequent occasions. I would answer the phone, and the two guys who lived with me would make the big miming, no, no, and wave their hands and indicate that they were not there with wide eyes and big facial expressions and big hand gestures. So I said they weren't there all the time. After hearing uh, the why about his prison sentence and being frustrated with patiently answering his calls on a repeated basis, 
He called one day while they were both out, and I told him that they were having lunch with Ted Koppel. The line went silent. So that was kind of true. He never called again. When I told them, the other two guys were ecstatic. And again, we were doing at least an eight ball to a quarter ounce every night. And I never paid a cent, ever. The same guy, reportedly, the bank robber, was such a heavy heroin mainliner that the vein strength, due to far too many track marks, meaning the structural integrity on his arms, were weak. And by this, he had shot up so frequently that they were fragile. And because of the drug addiction, his immunity was compromised. So the veins never quite healed the way a simply shot in the arm person might. It's weird to think of junkies taking up the same space as non-junkies in the outside world when they spend so much time retreating from it. But this guy went along with this group of friends, all junkies and hardcore drug users, because they were also post-adolescents, to amusement and water parks. Imagine yourself at a wet and wild water park on a sunny day and everyone is vivacious, outgoing, energetic, sporty, sun-kissed, athletic, and engaged, and suddenly the groovy ghoulies show up. The bank robber was one of the gang, and when he went on one of the water slides, he made it down to the shallow end of the pool at the end of the ride, and people let out screams and shrieked as they ran away. It seems the slight water pressure from the slide popped open the veins on his arms, unbeknownst to him, and he left a trail of bloody water from the slide all the way down to the pool where he was staggering to get up and out of the water and his arms were bleeding from multiple injection puncture sites and the blood was smearing and dribbling from his arms while he was smiling and very pleased with not only his experience, but was full of enjoyment from being at the park. He was stopped by park staff and was informed that he was bleeding and they needed to hustle him out of there, but were also grossed out and fearful for their own safety. Meanwhile, other attendees were freaking out as they were exposed to the running, dripping blood and the red water while this guy was taken away for emergency medical assistance. I would imagine that experience was fodder for therapy sessions for a few years to come for many of the park goers. And of course, they had to close down the ride and disinfect the whole damn thing and just make it a nightmare for everyone who was involved. By the way, the entire time I spent there at the place I was living at, if you want to call it living. I slept on the floor in the living room, as did my friend. We frequently ended the evenings long after the sun came up by drinking a bottle of red wine, which was mysteriously appropriated from the restaurant we were both employed at. We got it from the attic. They did not have a basement or cellar, but a wine attic. A ratty, bare-walled, uninsulated, hot in the summer and cold in the winter attic. We would go up there when it was not very busy to <clears throat> take stock, which consisted of us doing about a half a gram of Coke each in a few minutes, several times a shift, and he would snag a bottle for later. We never had the presence of mind to ever take or purchase a corkscrew. Can you believe it? When the morning came, we would go into the kitchen of the place we were living at and open the drawer to look for one as if it might magically appear or we had conned ourselves into thinking there might be one in there, but there never was. Of course there wasn't. We defaulted to using a bent tine of a fork and jamming it into the side of the cork on about a 15 to 20 degree angle and try not to get too much cork floating in the bottle, but we almost always did. 
The kitchen was full of bent tined forks. It looked like Yuri Geller had been in the house. By the time we actually fell out and passed out, the other guy would be getting ready to go to his job and intimidate and threaten delinquent indebted people over the phone and supervise others that did as well. I still can't quite picture the legitimacy of that operation, but it was somewhere in an industrial office campus or commercial building on Long Island somewhere. I had no idea. When you are in futility trying to drum up reasons to justify why you are being self-destructive when you know better and are still using, it reminds me of being enthusiastically attracted to a specimen of manhood with an outstanding physique, but is an empty vessel inside. Many good-looking fit men are also highly intelligent, cultured, and accomplished, but no matter when we are attracted to them because of their appearance, we tend to invest them with attributes they cannot possibly possess or live up to outside of our fevered imaginations. Aside from their complete indifference to whether you exist or not, they simply are not made of the fantastic fluff you have decided they are comprised of. And being in the vicinity of them for any occasion does not make you special or better or superior or endowed with any enhanced qualities. It actually lessens your presence to mere superficiality. So my friend had a rudimentary skill of playing the guitar and was fond of playing Bob Dylan songs while we were lounging around on the floor of the place getting coked out. He liked to play the idiot wind and would change the lyrics to, you're an idiot, Tim. I knew he was right. I was and still am quite the idiot. Oh, by the way, we almost never went downstairs to the basement of the place. But when we did, my friend shared his grand vision of using the basement as a growing operation to hydroponically grow weed to sell. This plan never came within 100 miles of fruition, let alone was anything plotted out. Absolutely nothing concrete in any sense ever occurred, so it was merely a pipe dream. But if he had succeeded in obtaining the materials needed, especially in those days, he would have drawn attention to our address due to deliveries of especially then illegal materials and the incredibly high electricity and water usage grow operations required back then. So this was not a realistic option ever. As an aside, I still do not and never will know what specific impact I had other than being told nice things by his father at the funeral when he was introduced to me. And at that point, they were mourning, in deep despair and terribly upset, so I had to take that in measure. He died when he was 27. He was a scammer, ever the scammer, flowing with cash but always with a larcenous heart. It became part of his nature, like one of Fagan's boys, and he could drink. One Sunday afternoon during brunch, I saw him drink 17 quadruple margaritas and hurricane glasses, and as he moved to try to place his glass on top of the cigarette machine in the bar so he could use the restroom, he missed and fell over like a tree that had just been cut down by a lumberjack. Faceplant. Yep, 17 quadruple margaritas. Alcohol was the very least harmful thing he was ingesting at the time. He died... Because his friend, who was the drug mule for a legendary rock star, who was sober and clean at the time, allegedly, was given the epithet Ignatz and was selling to friends in the towns or areas the group toured in while the rock star was temporarily clean. And he gave him some extremely potent heroin and the guy, who had a funny nickname, Ignatz, came to the restaurant with his girlfriend, and they sat outside. 
The girlfriend was also a junkie and could not stomach her food, so she vomited prolifically on the concrete under the grape arbor and was taken out in between two sets of arms to a waiting car. My friend subsequently overdosed and died by himself in the subletted basement apartment of a house a co-worker and his fiance were renting. I'm going to close by saying I am eternally grateful to one fellow who confronted me at the door of the, uh, let's say, residence I was living at, if you could call it living, the center of the drug operation, and he was doing the right thing by staging a one-man intervention at the door of the place. I was angry and resentful as he spoke to me, but after he left, I got to look at myself in the bathroom mirror as I prepared to (laughs) go to work for the evening, and not only did I look like death warmed over, but my chest was concave. Right then and there, at that point, I somehow managed to snap out of the spiral, pulled myself together, and went cold turkey. Right then, at that very instant. Enough was enough. I decided that I wanted to walk in the sun. And that was it. After I left the place, their mutual arrangement fell apart somehow. And I don't know if I was unconsciously acting as a sort of connective tissue or my presence was a buffer or whatever occurred, but the freebaser and my friend went their separate ways. More to come. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Peace out.